Violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. Uh, I've failed, and I've succeeded. And, uh, but of all those pictures you talk about, basically our morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers and there are certain people who are not. That's all. I lost everything in the housing crisis and all I got was a stupid podcast. You know, like... I, I went to New York and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. Or I went to uh, Vancouver, Canada and all I got was this... Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's the last mission. Uh, welcome to the uh, podcast. It's the good, the pawn, the ugly. We are covering some of your... Uh, well, I guess you're going to talk about that. Some of your favorite directors, though. Um, this is your host, Jack. I'm Ken. And I'm Thomas. Uh, this is season seven and we are doing... Four by four, four films by four different directors. Uh, the first three, uh, each one of us got to pick. My pick was uh, John Frankenheimer. Went pretty well. I picked Harmony Corinne. Thomas picked Harmony Corinne, which also went quite well. And then um, kind of a kind of a curveball. Maybe a... A trouble with the curveball? Yeah. Maybe Call back a, to um, season. Yeah, a yeah, a, a German inflected curveball. Jack picked uh Uwe Boll. Uh last week we did part one where we did Alone or Afraid of the Dark. Is it Alone in the Dark? Alone in the alone. Dark. A dungeon yeah. siege Alone in the Dark, a Dungeon Siege Tale. The last mission. And then <laughs> uh, we also talked about Postal. And this week we are discussing um two more great films. In the name of the Father, <laughs> three, uh, the last, the last tango in Bulgaria, a a dungeon, dungeon skittle movie. Yes, and uh, then we're all ta- uh, talking about Attack on Wall Street, which is the whole reason Jack wanted to do Uwe Boll as his director in the first place, right, Jack? That is correct. I need to defeat Turvin to get the medallion so I could go home and you won't have to worry about Turvin anymore. We can work together. (laughs) Um, So this preamble, before we start talking in the movie, is very much in keeping with the opening credits of In the Name of the King, which is about three minutes of actual story, but it's padded out into about a 12-minute credit sequence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so In the Name of the King... Are you going to just jump into it? We're going to jump into Bulgaria. I mean, I guess we could talk about maybe a little bit that we watched some other bowl films to sort of get a larger. Oh, so um, uh, I missed the the second part of the Corinne episode uh, coverage because uh, I was laid up after surgery. So after the last two bowl movies, I was like, man, there's got to be something more to this dude. So um, I watched four additional Uwe Bowl movies in the last week. I watched. Um, Blood Rain, the Third Reich, because it was free and didn't have advertisement. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched uh, Attack on Darfur. I watched mm-hmm. Suddenly, and I watched Rampage. Thomas, two of those titles were made up. 
Huh. I think suddenly, because that sounds like he's p- pandering to me and my wife, like uh, her, with her <laughs> first name being Lee. Um, uh-huh. I have no idea. Well, only one of them is based on a, a video game. Is is it Blood Rain? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, but I, much like in the name of the king, maybe by the third one, it's gotten so far removed from the original source material. Might not even count. But yeah, I watched I watched House of the Dead and Far Cry, which House of the Dead is actually pretty good. Uh-huh. Um, Far Cry is terrible, though. So uh, my experience with the other four movies that I watched before the two this week, um, uh, ran, out of all the movies, including the two this week, Rampage is probably his most successful movie as far as what he wanted it to be and how it ended up on the screen. I think it, there's a very short distance between those two. Was um, Rampage where you had, you could be either a, like a King Kong ripoff, a Godzilla ripoff, or I can't remember what the third thing was. in like uh, an NES setting, like a eight bit graphics. It's not the Dwayne Johnson movie. Yeah. No. One of the first things I ever learned about bowl back whenever uh, that rampage came out with Dwayne, the rock Johnson was uh, him suing universal or whoever, because no one will see his rampage anymore. <laughs> uh, it's fair. Uh, and I, well, rampage, I did say it was successful as far as what he wanted to do and, and how it ended up. But I found it a, a wholly morally repugnant movie um, to actually watch. But uh, as far as how he made it, it seemed like the movie he wanted to make. And there wasn't a lot of his normal um, filmatism crappiness. Um, so was it like UA Bowl and an orangutan driving around and like the orangutan punches people? Everybody says right turn. It's about a little hobbit incel who goes on a, a shooting rampage and, and kills like scores of people. So there's no monsters destroying buildings. Uh, Bill Williamson's kind of a monster, and he destroys a building. It turns out people are the biggest monsters of all, Thomas. Especially on Wall Street. Uh, Attack on Darfur. Um, uh, I think uh, his righteous anger at nobody looking at the genocide in in Africa was was wholly uh, justified. I I think the the final film is kind of sloppy and doesn't have much of a plot. But um, one of his better movies, for sure. Very much gets into the... on location in Canada? No, in Africa. Oh, he does go to Dufur. I don't know where they or shot somewhere. it, but it was, it was some okay. African desert. It's very much... He has a, a mode where he makes these semi-improvisational verite, curb your enthusiasm for incel style yeah. filmmaking. And I think he's a little more successful at that when people are are speaking from a character kind of improvising and, and not really reciting lines that he wrote. Uh, I think those movies are a little more successful. Did, did he write them or did Google translate write them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of Thomas, did you happen to get the, uh, in the name of the King three DVD from the Multnomah County library or a different source? I got it from a different source. Unfortunately, the Multnomah County Library does have standards of some sort. So I had to go to uh, Netflix and rent it on DVD, which is a service they still provide and has since uh, ruined the algorithm for me. Having gotten this and I 
think um the movie last week with postal oh yeah yeah that'll fuck up your algorithm right there yeah so did you watch any of the like maybe the director's commentary or any of the behind the scenes because i cannot find anything on the internet about this movie like i even like searched like on reddit like on like the ue bowl subreddits and stuff and it's like no i i don't i feel like no one has seen this movie so i can't find anything surprisingly huh and we're talking about in the name of the king the last mission which came out in 2014 even though some places say that it came out in 2013 maybe because it came out on dvd in like holland or somewhere <laughs> um which i guess t- 2014 you could have watched left behind instead direct a video which i would recommend Ooh, yeah. um it is uh yeah there i did watch some of the dvd features the only one that i saw i didn't see director's commentary i saw uh behind the scenes where it was talking to uh ua and the star of both of these films we're talking about this week this and assault on wall street uh the canadian film star dominic purcell thank you prison break yeah legends Uh, of tomorrow or that was called sure okay so ua and dominic uh uh switch back and forth talking uh it, it feels like from dominic's uh recital of the plot because he says like uh i get a medallion and then something happens and i'm in the past um with that kind of delivery that he loved working on assault on wall street and became friends with ua bull uh and then did this maybe have as a favor yeah they did shoot everything in Bulgaria with Bulgarian uh, actors and actresses so that they would feel more medieval because uh, that way people wouldn't have to learn an accent. Uh, UA Bull, I guess, thinks of Bulgaria as already in the Middle Ages. So uh, (laughs) shooting there, it was like they didn't have to do anything, I guess. Uh, Yeah, Uh, there's about 12 minutes of them talking and showing some behind the scenes features which I accidentally started first. And I was like, oh, wait, this takes place in the present day in a hotel room? Because uh, UA Bulls uh, talk about how he need, uh, Dominique uh, needs a silencer or something on his on his gun. Right. And like stops, stops production for a moment. He also says that oftentimes in the script, he'll write something like, move stealthily like a cat, right? Uh, and then he says, but then when you get to the screen and you have Dominique Purcell, he doesn't move like a cat. He doesn't crawl. He just, he moves in his own way. So that's what you shoot. You shoot him moving in his own way. Stalking. Uh, how would you describe it? Hunkily through the corridors. (laughs) (laughs) You said it, not me. (laughs) Right said Fred, I'm too sexy, like strutting. But there is something between that and maybe like a construction worker who's taken one too many falls or just become, you know, <laughs> his body's been worn out with the years of of, uh, of intense labor. Right. There's something kind of hulking about his, uh, yeah, his movements, like a wrestler past his prime. It's great in the next film we're going to talk about. Uh, he is, he is, extru- he seems like somebody who is actually watching the movie. He comes off as so bored. And indifferent. He gets thrown into the past, has to get a medallion to overthrow a king. And let's 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 go through the plot. I'm sorry, Jack. Yes. Will you read is there a, a letterboxed or yes. anything for this? Okay. Because oh. 
I laughed out loud <laughs> twice and fell asleep thrice during this film. Yeah. Um, Put that on the and, poster. Which meant I had to watch it again. I watched parts of it again, which was upsetting. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. In the name of the king. Uh, Three. Fight to the end. This is the description. Granger, an ex-Special Forces soldier, gets thrown back to medieval times to fulfill an ancient prophecy. Venturing through the now war-torn kingdom of Ebb, he teams up with an unlikely band of allies with the goal of slaying the leader of the Dark Ones. Fighting against all odds, they must free the land from the grasp of the evil tyrant Raven and save the world. That's the description for In the Name of the King 2, The Two Worlds. Now, you might be thinking, why did I read that one instead of the description for the movie that we actually watched? And that's because he made the same fucking movie twice. Yeah, well, once with Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> and then, yes. Yeah. So he actually got two Expendables, right? Because Jason Statham <laughs> is in the first one. And then you get Dolph Lundgren in the, in the second one. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and I think the first one is his only PG-13 movie. Oh, really? I think yeah. so. I was trying to find another PG-13 movie, and that was the only one I could find. Well, the first In the Name of the King does not look like it had a budget of $65 million, but it did. What? And that's, that's the largest budget of any movie he's ever had and will ever have. And he got a bunch of stars in it, like um, Ray Liotta and Ron Perlman and Burt Reynolds for some reason. Um, one of his last roles, I think. I want a mustache, damn it. <laughs> that gummo reference, I'm sorry. I, I really wish we were back with Harmony Korean still, guys. Oh. <laughs> sorry, man. It's okay. We gotta move on. Um but so the first in the name of the king, right, it it actually had locations that looked medieval. It had villages that they set on fire for the movie. It had like, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty extras riding horses at a time. It had an army of goblins or orcs or whatever. Um, and real it, ones, or did they fake that? Uh, real, real. I mean, they looked they looked cheap, but they were real people dressed up as as orcs. I mean, oh, taking orc jobs. Okay. <laughs> um, but but that actually looked and felt like a movie, and it's like two two hours long, maybe a little longer than Ooh. two hours, uh-huh. and. It's not good, but compared to... This feels like a movie released by Asylum Films, maybe. It looks like it looks like he did like a parody of his own movie. Like he... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make a, 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 whole lot of, a whole lot of sense what this is. It, it only makes sense if you start thinking of how the movie got made. The only reason it got made is for some sort of uh, possibly quasi-illegal money laundering tax write-off scheme because there's zero reason for any of this to exist and most of the people in it seem completely bored by the entire process i mean yeah nightclub antonio banderas who's running the the good guys i mean he he kind of seems like he's into it for a few scenes he right. seems like he got fooled into thinking that this was going to be a big role for him um do you ever- think they just had like uh i don't know um top secret or advanced technology like microchips or maybe drugs or something in that cargo container now the whole movie was just to get that cargo container into bulgaria so then they can move it into some like hostile nation wow whoa 
that I mean that must it must be something like that or like some Romanian royalty had some blackmail on Bull and needed him to yeah move drugs or money or or something because it it is literally the second movie just again with a lower budget in the second and movie in the second movie does Dolph Lundgren have a tattoo on his arm that matches a medallion that he takes off of a girl that he's kidnapped into the past? Yeah, and then he says he just got the tattoo somewhere in California. Venice like, no Beach. Yeah. Venice Beach, like, no big deal. It's just a tattoo. What? It's like, I also have a tattoo. It's a map of uh, prison here on my chest. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> What's also crazy is the king, where they go back to the past, uh, the king who controls the dragon, the evil, evil brother king, uh, has tattoos, like modern tattoos on his body. Like they didn't bother to cover it up at all. Uh, and so in the past, there were dragons, which is the first time I, second time I laughed. First time I laughed uh, is whenever he, he takes the medallion off the girl and then like the girl gives him a hug or something. And then he walks out and in the worst CGI I've ever seen, like worse than like, uh, early 90s television uh, CGI, like season one of Buffy, teleports him to the past. <laughs> and I'm like, how the fuck did that happen? But then, as I'm, wa- as I'm watching him walk into town and uh, nobody blats an eye that he's dressed like a 20th century, 21st century hunk um, with a gun in his hand, no one bats an eye about that as, as they're like leaving the town. And then two minutes of me like trying to process that no one's concerned or interested in the stranger coming into their town. A dragon appears and starts blowing flame. Not just a, a dragon, which would be crazy enough, but a, a flame-throwing dragon from the past that he has to try and shoot out of the sky and is unsuccessful. It is so funny that he immediately wastes all of his bullets trying to shoot the dragon, and then the gun never comes back into play in the rest of the story. Yeah, they never have to like, okay, well, no, we could figure out how to make bullets. I know how to make gunpowder. You have an ironworks. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court style or uh, Army of Darkness, uh, like figuring out right. how to make saltpeter and like make, because they, they bring it up so many times that he has a gun that doesn't have bullets. Yeah. He just needs bullets. And then, and then yeah, I, I guess we, we you uh, mentioned this, Thomas, but I really don't think we can gloss over the fact that the first two in the name of the king, or at least the the first one, is set on like it's not Earth, like it's like how Middle Earth isn't like supposed to be actual real life history, uh, or like Westeros, like it's not like Westeros isn't wasn't real, right? And then in this one, it's just Bulgaria, but then there's also magic and dragons, so I don't. I, it's the real world. How much magic was there? I mean, there's the magic of being able to like control the dragon. I thought he wasn't controlling the dragon with magic because he was standing in front of a bunch of eggs. So I assume he had the dragon's eggs and was black. Um, what? He's black. So the dragon's like, oh, well, there's puny little human standing in front of my eggs. I got to do okay. what he so says. I was extremely confused. And I think we could just run through the plot very quickly because <laughs> I the, the cover of this looks like the cover of two, of course. You just switch out, you Photoshop out uh, Lundgren <laughs> and you put in uh, Dominique and he has a sword. And so I put it on and then I, I started accidentally with the, I, had, I was like, 
trying to do something like cooking or something at the same time. So I decided to put on the special features and I, st- I saw that they started in a hotel. I was very confused. So I turned off the special features. I, I said, okay, this film isn't going to be what I thought it was. Like maybe it's some type of legacy from the first two movies that he's inherited, which makes sense, right? Like that's Ooh. why Dolph Lundgren's not in this film. That's why Statham's not in this film because it's like maybe every so many years it's get passed down or maybe he's like a Rosicrucian or something, right? Maybe there's some type of secret society that he's part of in the name of the king. And there's like somebody dead in a hotel room bathroom, right? And then you take your time to have him go flashback like 15 minutes to have him leave one hotel room to go to a different uh, hotel, to a different hotel room to kill somebody. And Bo Bo will use that same uh, montage, start the end and go back to the starting late in Assault on Wall Street. Um, he does that in a lot of his movies where he'll start a scene at the end of the scene and then he'll kind of show you how you got to the scene. I, I'm not sure what that's about, but I have seen it three or four times in his movies. Well, he talks about on the Assault on Wall Street uh, director's commentary about working with his editor, Thomas Schnauz, maybe. <laughs> um, He's got a nose for how to put a film together. Uh, but he, he talks about working with his editor and how... They, their style sort of sort of uh, gels together, so that's probably a a symptom of of that. Okay, I'd imagine. I mean, as far as the credit goes, it's 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 not bad. It's I think the opening is actually pretty good, and we get some good uh, we get some good squibs to start off, which I'm always a big fan of. Jack so. is a big fan of squibs. He he kidnaps the two little girls. He's gonna. I don't even know what his plan. You know, I I totally lost interest in what his plan was when he took a medallion, medallion, and then one of them hugged her, and then it turned out people in the present were also in the past, like Wizard of Oz. Uh, the whole thing just became like uh, a strange oh, yeah. fever dream. <laughs> the the guy that plays the the king, the um maybe like uh, Venice Beach Johnny Depp impersonator. <laughs> yes, he is also the bad guy in the present that's going to kill the kids with the same facial hair but then he dominic purcell is the one that kidnapped the kids and is supposedly okay with this guy murdering them or ransoming rants ransom ransoming ransoming them and it's not a great way to start off like your protest like i'm fine with like a your protagonist not being like the good guy or whatever but the film never really seems to call into moral question that he just kidnapped two little kids and put duct tape on their mouths and lock them in a storage unit. It doesn't make any sense. I think it's supposed to deflate his uh, ominousness. Whenever one of the kids runs away and he chases after her and grabs her um, and says, like, why are you making an old man run after you? Some of this is supposed to be funny. And I just don't think the Google Translate works perfectly <laughs> all times. Well, there's the moment where he's like, given though he's like, this is my last, this was my last job. I've got one more job for you. Okay. Hands him the pictures of the the two little girls, and he doesn't bat an eye. That's normally the part in the movie where they go like, "Kids, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't do kids." Right. But nope, he just goes like, "Okay, then this is my last job." <laughs> uh, yeah, he seems like he's a very passive protagonist, and I I think Dominic Purcell's a great actor. And I think he's really good in this other film we're going to talk about, but he just he does seem bored or just apathetic or something. Cause he does things just happen to him and he just doesn't 
ever have any sort of reaction the, at all. The passive assassin is a great title for a story. Ooh. Either of you could you go ahead and use it. Uh, I call it. I would use it. Yeah. But I'm kind of a passive assassin myself. I was thinking about I was thinking about ranking films that have storage containers in them, and I think that uh, Ready Player One beats this one now. Huh. For okay. Yeah. That's probably the first time Ready Player One has beaten any movie at anything. Yes. Besides maybe like steaming giant pile of unwatchable dog shit award. Yes. Um, okay. I haven't seen Ready Player One. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and also the other thing is this movie is like what? It's credited at like 80, is it 80 minutes? Very generous 80 minutes. Minus, minus like all the opening credits and closing credits. It's probably closer to 70. Yeah, there's a lot of the Ed Wood shots of people getting out of things and walking towards something. Yes. Yeah. Of plot, though, this is a solid 20 minutes. Because (laughs) you have the hotel killing scene. You have the I'm out, just one more job scene. You have the kidnapping scene. And it's like minute 15 whenever he's like putting the kids in the storage container. Uh, For whatever reason, taking the mask, uh, taking the tape off their arm. mouths and uh, wrists so that they're free to move around in the container and drink water i guess while he goes to do the thing which i thought was to kill the their their dad and just using them as collateral but it's uncertain like i don't think he's supposed to kill them in the container and one of the things that bull said about the film is that there was a ticking time clock he didn't use those words he speaks better english um (laughs) but that uh dominique purcell had to get back to the present before the the children died in the container, which is like was the big thing about the the movie that uh, I guess was subtext. Um, you have to save the kids. They do say that in the movie in the past, right? Okay. But he never really so, goes. He never really has a moment where he looks off into the distance and goes, "Yeah, you know what? I do need to get back and save those kids." There's never that moment where he has to make some sort of pivotal decision, like to save his love interest or go back and save the kids from some, or like he never There's has no to choice. make a decision. Yeah. Like the plot just happens to him. He's like, he's maybe not going to go through the portal. And she's like, you have to go save the kids. And he's just like, okay. And he walks through and saves them. <laughs> of, the, of those 12 minutes of uh, behind the scenes, you get that from Dominic Purcell. He's just like, I don't like, this is the plot. I don't understand it, uh, but Yue is a good friend of mine, and I did a, a pretty amazing movie last year with him, so it's kind of in his hands. Let's finish out the plot, guys, because he goes back <laughs> in the past in the first 20 minutes. He has to, there's a bad person who he has to beat, even though he can't use a sword to ride a horse, and there's no montage of him getting better. He just is magically better, and then fights him in a forest, comes back to the present by, like, what, minute 100? And lets sure. the kids out, and there's a dragon, and the, they also comes through the portal with him. <laughs> Which I kept forgetting about the dragon during the film. I think the the third time that I laughed, like I woke back up, and I'm like, oh shit, this movie's still going on. And then all of a sudden, a dragon attacks them as they're like leaving. He thinks that what does he think? They says sh- shaman, but he thinks he hears what foreman or. Boardman? I don't know. There's some <laughs> joke in there. Uh, I, but the, the dragon comes back, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about the dragon. There's a dragon in this world. Just one. Yeah, it would eventually go into the future so that by the end of the film, 
he's like walking away like any UA Bowl uh, protagonist will at the end of, of a movie, uh, walking down a street, middle of a street typically, um, and there's a dragon. Yeah, in the background, in modern day, in modern day Bulgaria, and and that is totally just because they forgot about the dragon, and someone like a few days before release was like, <laughs> "Yo, Uwe, wasn't there a dragon in the present in this movie?" And then they said, "Oh shit!" And the post production team, which was probably like two guys in a basement editing this movie, just threw in like the dragon, like the generic flying. <laughs> <laughs> it's but the the thing about the dragon is it's like i assume some sort of stock animated dragon sprite that they downloaded for like 3.99 off of a oh for yeah sure, of a website. it is photos what is it like photo stock or uh it is yeah it is just a stock animated <laughs> dragon <laughs> flying by from uh right to left yeah no perspective in profile. Oh yeah, flying by, and it cha- well, it changes size frequently. Like sometimes it's a little bigger than a horse, and then sometimes it's like this huge, like Game of Thrones monstrosity. No, dragons can do that, Jack. I don't know. You you need to catch up on your dragon, oh. or dragons dragons totally can uh, change size. Yeah, and they also really existed. So I wonder. So on the assault on Wall Street commentary, I'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to the movie, but. Bull spends like a lot of time talking about like these. I guess they're not really conspiracies because they really well. Cons- they're not really conspiracy theories because they really did happen. But he's talking about all these financial crisis conspiracies and stuff. So I wonder if he's really into conspiracy theories and he thinks that like dinosaurs didn't exist but dragons did, <laughs> and he just like actually believes that. <laughs> we need a. We need a. Uh, in the name of the kinger, for. Really yeah, I was hoping that there would be like the end, and then like a question mark would appear, like, <laughs> or he walks away and he says, "In the name of the king, I, I, whenever, wherever dragons are flying around, I will be there to deliver justice." Yeah, and, <laughs> and the Tom Jode. Um, so you know this movie is cheap that it doesn't end with the dragon coming at the camera and opening its mouth in a screech, uh, it, and then it cuts to credits because that's how every movie normally ends like that's how alone in the dark ends oh that's true (laughs) (laughs) quite common um there's even some like bird bird demic shock and terror moments like when the dragon is flying above them and they just have like like the the women characters just have the swords and they're like vaguely like poking the sky in random (laughs) directions and there isn't even like the dragon doesn't even have a shadow on the ground and the ground that they're riding their horses on also has tire tracks. I don't know if you guys noticed that. <laughs> that Dominic Purcell's not the first person that's gone back. If a dragon go in the future, then a Jeep can go into the past. Oh. <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, well, that's why we need the fourth one to really explore. I, I hope all this takes place on an island, like from like a, a flight from maybe Australia, Sydney to the <laughs> States, where people have landed <laughs> over the years. Oh, is that like I never finished Lost? Oh well, it's actually Purgatory. Oh, and there's dragons with dragons. At least dust monsters or cloud monsters, right? Well, let's say some positives about the movie because it's not all bad. It is only eighty minutes long. (laughs) Yes, you're being generous with the amount of actual screen time that story, given the endless opening credit scroll. Yes, there was there was some 
there is some shot that it, we were all watching and we laughed really, really hard, like doubled over in laughter because there's a stunt guy in the back, like one of the bad guys yeah. that just runs into a bush and clearly trips over it and like falls and rolls down a hill. And then the camera like cuts away. And it was clearly a mistake and they just didn't have enough time or didn't care enough to, or they didn't have enough footage. <laughs> right. We're putting everything in. They needed to get to He's, that exact. He still has a mark. bagel in his hand, Uwe, from the craft <laughs> service table. We didn't even call action. We are putting it in there. <laughs> yeah, people give uh, what Last of the Mohicans shit for like being able to spot anachronisms in it. This film actually is better for the amount of anachronisms in it. I w- I would say. Uh, yeah, it's closer to like. Walk, uh, Walker by Alex Cox <laughs> or like um, maybe Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola it has these things on purpose yes I think it was really smart uh, for Bull to say the people who are attacking you in the past should have their faces covered like ninjas because that way we could just use the same actors over two actors over and over again very smart wow very smart. Yeah, that's Bull. what people. That's what people say about uh, Bull uh, that work with him. I think um, on the behind the scenes of the other movie, uh, Terminator Two, Eddie Furlong was saying that uh-huh. Bull is just so so efficient, and he's like like an Eastwood, where he just gets if he has a project, he'll just do it and get it done. But Eddie Furlong claimed that he doesn't do anything sloppily, like he doesn't cut corners. I think maybe in the name of the King Three is an example of. Of definitely cutting some doesn't corners. cut corners. Uwe Boll's productions are circles, man. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the oh, actress who plays his love interest is really good. I thought what? the one with the eyebrow ring holes. Yeah, she <laughs> like very annoying. She, I liked how like everyone's Bulgarian accents were really strong, and they didn't try to, I don't know, <laughs> cover that up or anything. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a positive, I guess. Uh, I have zero positives for this movie, shockingly enough. But I wanted to talk about Dominic Purcell because he was also in Suddenly. So I saw three Bull Purcell joints. Uh, and then Suddenly is very much in the uh, in the name of the king mode where he like barely says anything. And when he does, he sounds like he's about to fall asleep. And he's supposed to play an assassin that's going to assassinate the president. And he's so bored by everything. Even when he's saying why they're doing it, it's like, went to Iraq. We wasn't really there for anything, but, (laughs) you know, they screwed us. So we're going to get him back. That's about, that's about the level of his performance in that movie. Uh, Ray Liotta's in it and he, he, you know, he picked up a paycheck and he gave it his best. So that's interesting that you mentioned suddenly because that in the name of the King three and assault on wall street all came out within a year of each other. Oh, so he had kind of a, I saw the trilogy, the first hell trilogy. You did. Nice. Uh, I think the one we're talking about next is probably the best of the three. The Per Incel trilogy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I don't really think I mean there isn't really much to 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 say that I have left I mean, about. This legitimately was an Argo uh exercise, right? Where they have a fake like they didn't realize there was even like film in the cameras. They, it was all just an operation to be able to move goods through Bulgaria to some other some other countries. Yes. I think you nailed it. It's a definitely an Argo situation. Wow. Yeah. Uwe Bull hates Argo. He well, I'll go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have Google reviews for this? 
Ken, you didn't like whenever uh, Dominic Purcell throws the sword into the guy's back? I, you know, there, there's the, the ending of this movie where it's just like a, a fight and it's all real tight close up because they don't want to show you that's the same guy three times. And then uh, the, he calls the dragon and then they follow him to his castle and then he... They just walk in. It's like they haven't taken this castle for years because they needed the prophecy, the guy with the tattoo that he got in Los Angeles at the same <laughs> tattoo shop where fake Johnny Depp gets all his tattoos. Uh-huh. They needed him to come, but they, when they get to the castle, there are, I think three guards there. It, it's it's yeah, they they just waltz in, and then the the dragon's kind of a a non non threat until the portal opens, and then it just follows him into modern day Bulgaria. Oh yeah, and then he like he stops a guy in a car by pointing his empty gun at him, and then this random guy whose face you never really see oh my is just God. speeding around the city while the dragon flies after And them. that dragon tears the roof off their car, <laughs> and then still, 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 the end of this guy's sequence is him letting Dominic Purcell out of the car <laughs> and then pleasantly driving off, like, well, that was fun. I'm going to go look for my roof now. <laughs> That's like a GTA character. Whenever somebody didn't put their parking brake on and smashed my car last week, I should have just been okay with it. Doesn't matter. Insurance will cover it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No Google reviews then. No, there isn't really. Every Letterboxd review is just people complaining about how stupid and boring the movie is, which is. I guess I could drop a live Letterboxd. Ooh, a live Letterboxd. Yeah. And Damn. would you uh, scoop afterwards um, just for the smell? But then also, would you. Um, Tell us how Harmony Corinne would have done this movie better. Uh, I I don't know if I could tell you how Harmony Corinne would have done this movie. Oh, do you want do you know my letterbox review of of the name of the King Three? You just said, huh? Yeah. <laughs> One and a half stars, <laughs> Ken Coral. Um, I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a solid one and a half. It's not. I mean, it was kind of funny, but it's not. Oh, so in both films. Uh, Mild spoiler, Dominic Purcell's wife is dead. He's a widower. Uh, yeah. So how about he never actually leaves the hotel room for the beginning. Instead, he's drinking Robitussin from like a slipper. And it's all a hallucination. Ooh. Everything that happens in the film. It is just him. Uh, and he can even do like a UA Bowl impersonation. Oh, wow. That's good. That's really good. I was I was really hoping, and I didn't have the budget for it, but I was I was so hoping that they blew all I don't know five hundred thousand dollars or how much movie this movie cost uh, at the end to have Jason Statham and Dolph Lundgren show up in like a Spider Man No Way Home scenario, and they could take <gasps> on the dragon as it was attacking Bulgaria's version of the Statue of Liberty or whatever. Wow, yeah. that some, would be awesome. You need some help? We are here. <laughs> I think Corrine might have uh, had maybe Dominic Purcell has a friend in the the modern day Bulgaria that's maybe a bird watcher, like a professional bird watcher, takes people on like bird watching tours, maybe, and maybe he's played by Martin uh, Lawrence. And at the end, Corrine bites his leg off. Uh, yeah, I think uh, in the past, if Corrine did it, uh, there would have been more tits. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think I think we constructed Corrine's vision of in the name of the King Three here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say about this movie. I'll just 
Uh, I don't know. I, it's honestly <laughs> there's two words that, that go a long way. One, the first word's a contraction, and the second word is sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I, uh, the entire time I was watching this movie, um, I, I became kind of a mouth breather because I was a little slack jawed. Oh yeah, over the fact that I was watching this movie. <laughs> but honestly, guys, better than Alone in the Dark. Yes, uh, it's funnier. Yeah, I, I, I like parts of Alone in the Dark a bit more. I think. Podcast over. Are we going to take a break here? A short break? Uh, well, I'm not going anywhere. But... Oh, yeah, because you have the dog. Can you give me another one of these uh, non-alcoholic West Coast IPAs? Okay. What? Who's that? I bleep it out. It's by Brewing. Pretty good. Oh. Yeah, I, I, have some, I have some good ones. I'll, I'll text you. Some good non-alcoholic IPAs. Okay. I've, I've tried a few last week. So What I actually like is, um, have you had the... the- the the hoppy refresher it's not a fake it's not a non-alcoholic yeah beer. it's like a ginger beer but that was the mujahideen right it yeah. wasn't al-qaeda yeah they kind of morphed into al-qaeda though they did yeah oh you know uh the photos of uh bin laden that they they took uh after he was shot the nose is different than his actual nose yeah okay. he's an actor uh-huh, you sure. know that that's why they spread his ashes over the ocean so that we couldn't dna test him yeah, that's right. And he was also CIA in the 70s. That's true. And uh, he uh, and George Bush uh, Jr. had a very good relationship. And at the very end of the world, while we were being <laughs> nuclear attacked by nuclear bombs, skipped uh, hand in hand into the oblivion. We'll be friends till the end, buddies, you and me. Hey, so uh, right before we started record, we're back, right? Sure. Right before we started recording, uh, I did get an email from our sales manager at... Uh, Conniption Nation Media, who hosts our podcast now and has got us um, ones and twos more listeners. Okay? <laughs> uh, the subject line is new money-making stream for all of our family. Okay. So uh, they want me to read it online or um, on the air. So, um, all right. Uh, because of our partnership with Conniption Nation Media, we have a very special branded sponsor this week. In conjunction with failed non-fungible token company Baby Ballers, which had NFTs of sports legends at babies, they have refunded and rebranded with Conniption Nation Media as Baby Baller Podsters, and their first NFTs of their initial rollout are cartoon avatars of your favorite film podcast crew brought together during the pandemic by their love of Clint Eastwood. Holy shit. Um, For a few pods more? Oh, did I ruin the punchline? Yeah, it's for a few. Oh, yeah, it is for a few pods more with Ben, Zach, and Ramis. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Sorry. The handsome and successful parallel universe version of our podcast. Those fucking guys. So uh, good luck with those NFTs. Going to be JPEGs of them as babies, deep throating pod micro microphones, or filling their diapers with MCU themed pinions. I don't know. Fuck. Anyway, uh, we are very excited. Baby Baller Podsters NFTs link is yeah. on the show notes and on our social media. Thank mm, you. Act now, yeah. <laughs> Fuck you guys. Wow. Jesus Christ. Get, they get all the lift. I don't understand it. I don't either. Well, crypto is the big, big new thing. This guy in line at Coles was telling me about it. Yeah. Yeah. He probably all he listens to probably a few pods more. As yeah, well. probably. My favorite part of Thor: Love and Thunder was when Thor was like, "Durr, that was awkward." Oh, they take his pants off. Yeah, <laughs> you see Thor's butt. Uh, <laughs> oh wait, are we talking about Black Hat? Yes, <laughs> yes. 
Black Hat. Black, no, yeah, Black Hat. Yeah, because Thor I was... I would, honestly, guys, I'd rather be talking about soy futures right now than Assault on Wall Street, but we could talk about <laughs> Assault on Wall Street, I guess. Assault on Wall Street. This is oh. the whole reason Jack picked Uwe Boll. So uh, can I tell a little history that you guys may not know about about this movie? Is it fake? It was made... Um, well, the, the budget came from Hallmark, and it was under the condition that they could, at the same time, make alternate versions with the same cast. Uh, the main one was Hallmark's A Snow on Wall Street, <laughs> where <laughs> Jim is working two jobs as an armored car driver, and the bank is about to foreclose after a bad investment. His wife's got cancer. Just as everything looks to be lost, a peculiar jolly man from up north asks <laughs> Jim and his partner to deliver a very special package with a red nose on Christmas Eve. Uh, the other two that they filmed at the same time, one was a pepper. Wait, 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 wait. Does the package have a red nose or does his partner, Eddie Furlong, have a red nose? I'm, I'm, reading, I'm reading the descriptions, man. I don't wait, know. speaking okay. of, of a jolly man from maybe up north, depending on where he's hiding, was it Osama bin Laden with a beard? You know, I only watched Assault on Wall Street. Oh, okay. The other one was A Pepper on Wall Street which was about an unrepentant hedge fund manager's fate changing when he meets a tiny little orphan named Pepper on Christmas Eve. Okay. Uh, and then the, the other one is a Saul on Wall Street about an old man who just lost his, lost his Bronx Jewish deli in a recession. He learns new tricks when he joins his grandson on Wall Street for trading antics and learns that family is the real investment all along. Wow. Spoiler. <laughs> is one of them played by Bob Odenkirk? No, it's all the same cast. It's just oh. Nix and Matt. Oh, okay. They filmed them all at the same time. Gotcha. All right, tell us about Assault on Wall Street and why why you love it so much. You actually bought the Blu-ray. I bought the Blu-ray, and I watched it twice yesterday. I watched it once with you, and then immediately afterwards, I watched it again with the commentary on. And I took, I think, five pages of notes here. Um, five pages being five napkins? <laughs> I actually busted out the notebook for this film. That's how important I think I think it is. Yeah, this is this is Bull's. I think many would consider this his best his best work, myself included. I mean, that's like the tallest little person, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, sir, I really do seriously love everything about this movie. I I think it's absolutely perfect, and it's the best. Like maybe growing up when all this shit was happening and hearing about it just through osmosis and like on the news and stuff. And I don't know, just yeah. Yeah. Growing up in, in a country that seems like it is powered by greed and it's been on, on a very steep decline. This is, uh, I think the only movie that has ever captured that exactly. Maybe besides actually there will be blood kind of does a good job as well, but this one, like specifically about the the housing crisis and everything, I just think this is a movie that only a non like only an immigrant could make this. Like someone who is American, I don't think would have really the the foresight to be this angry about uh, uh, what's going on. And I mean, Bola is an angry filmmaker. This is a very clever film, and I think it's a very calm film for most of it. But it's also one of the angriest movies I've ever seen. Just genuine, literal presented like with no. No fluff, no fancy tricks, no, uh, uh, just like straight, like right in your face, like you should be, uh, mad about this. And I just think it's brilliant. So I, uh, the first couple of days after my surgery, I, I got a recommendation for our uh, pod buddy, Eric, to watch a movie called Margin Call, 
which came out a few years before Assault on Wall Street. Um, slightly different outcome of the movie, but it takes place inside, you know, at the starting of the movie where they're all getting together and they're saying we have to sell all this stuff. Mm. Um, it's almost taken from Margin Call, and I'm pretty sure Uwe Boll had to have seen that movie before he wrote Assault he on Wall Street. Yeah, he talks about that. Uh, because it's almost, this almost feels like a sequel to that movie in a lot of ways because it's the aftermath of all the stuff that they do in Margin Call. And how it affects somebody, you know, on the street level, like uh, Dominic Purcell and Canadian Linda Cardellini. So uh, that, that was just a weird coincidence that I watched both of them. Yeah, he watched that as as inspiration. He talks about that on the. Oh, okay. But he wanted to make a movie of, about the same thing, but from the perspective of the little guy, as he says, the little guy. Okay, and, so they uh, are connected. Yeah, very cool. I don't think that Dominic Purcell is that little. <laughs> he, he just has a huge head. I think that's what you're you're thinking. I don't think he's a big guy. Okay, you think it's you think it's like that one mode in GoldenEye for the Super Nintendo where you could just have big heads uh, running around shooting each other. <laughs> yeah, he's like one. Of, he's a Funko Pop as a person. Okay. Uh, do you? Uh, wait, uh, what do you guys? Oh, is you, this your first watch? This is my first watch. And so the the reason I thought of the reason I thought of Hallmark is I've seen a few of like feel good Hallmark movies, and a lot of this movie feels like it's cast and shot like one of those feel good Christmas movies where, but when everything seems lowest, they meet a stranger in town on Christmas <laughs> Eve, and whenever I'm watching those movies, I always think you know it'd be cool is if he just he just snapped and just killed everybody instead of meeting a mysterious Christmas stranger. So this movie becomes what I always wanted those Hallmark movies to come in the last act where it's just like all the bad stuff that's happening does not get fixed with some magic guy on Christmas Eve. He just goes and kills the fuck out of everybody. Um, yeah. And that's what this feels. Like. It almost feels like a weird parody of, of a Hallmark movie where it's uh, it could also be on like the country music network, I guess. If they just had accents and cowboy hats, <laughs> it could be like, you know, the just the good people who are working hard, who get screwed, and then something miraculous happens, and they're happy. Yeah. No, I could, I could definitely definitely see that. I, I think with the opening, uh, using uh, and, and using so much uh, footage from the crisis itself to tell the story, uh, it felt a lot like um, an Adam McKay film, post-Anchorman 2, of course. Like, mm. Vice or uh, the Big Short or even Don't Look Up, uh, uh, but, but with fewer characters and it, I, you know what? It felt like Falling Down, the the Schumacher movie, if it was directed by Adam McKay. Hmm. Okay. Or 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 if he took uh, John Carpenter's They Live and he took out the aliens. Well, I mean that's the point, right? Huh. Yeah, I guess so. Rich people are the aliens. Yeah, but it also helped that Keith, uh, Keith David's in, in both. <laughs> That's true. Uh, they, they live <laughs> in this film. That's right. Or uh, David Keats, as Uwe Boll thinks his name is. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and my, Michael Perret was in like three or four of the movies that I watched of Bulls. Uh, he played a German in <laughs> Blood Rains, and then he played a... In the commentary, Uwe Boll is talking about that, and he says he's worked with him many times, but he doesn't think he's a very good actor, which is just an insane thing to say. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I guess we could go over maybe the background a little bit. Uwe Boll wrote this movie himself. Uh, he, he wrote this movie um, in 2008. He started doing uh, research on it. And he, in the commentary, it is insane. He does not start talking. I texted you guys last night when I was watching it. I said, I don't think Uwe Boll knows what a director's commentary is. Because it took over 30 minutes of the film for, her, for him to say anything about the movie. The entire opening 30 minutes <laughs> is him rambling about the financial crisis. But the interesting thing is he claimed that he did years of research on this. And I was like, well, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. But during the, uh, the opening 30 minutes, he just rambles off the top of his head, just fact after fact, and all these statistics, how many people died as a result of this, all the numbers, like he has everything in his head. So he researched the shit out of this movie. And I think it really uh, shows on screen. Yeah, he originally wanted Viggo Mortensen or Ryan Gosling. And uh, neither of their uh, agents thought it was a good idea for them to do the film. And they went through a couple other actors originally who didn't want to do the ending. So a lot of people passed on this because they thought the ending was a little too extreme. And that's like much like Postal with the opening scene. That's something Uwe refused to compromise on. Uh-huh. I think I, I appreciate that. And I think it would have been fun if he still tried to get Gosling in, but said it was a Lifetime movie. And he's like, <laughs> thing. you know, it's see, it's see after the dailies, which one we want to go with. Uh, and yeah, the style of this movie is, is really bizarre. And I think Hallmark is maybe the right way to describe it. And I do think, I mean, after watching so many other Bull movies, is totally intentional the way that he wanted to market this. Uh, the original title was Bailout, The Age of Greed, or The Bailout, but... The, That's pretty good. He wanted that title, but they wanted to market it as Assault on Wall Street so that it would come up first, alphabetically, uh, when people are getting TVs. Uh, it's like naming your plumbing business AAA Plumbing. Yeah. Very smart. Don't put the word triple in there. Do the three A's. So he wanted to, he researched the shit out of financial crisis, a housing crisis, and wanted to do a movie from the little guy's perspective because he thought no one was angry enough about it. No one was paying enough attention. And um, he started with the ending of the film. So he actually wrote the ending first and worked backwards from there. And it, the script went through a bunch of changes because they had to fix a bunch of, of technical stuff and facts and, and the data, you know, yeah, um, to make it as accurate <laughs> uh, originally he was going in a pizza place in new york <laughs> but yeah do you guys i mean do you guys like this movie though do we want to do a quick letterbox uh is there such a thing uh, just to make sure that we cover a little bit of, of the plot i mean we, we've touched on it but i think one of my big criticisms might have to deal with uh the plot okay amazing do you want to go ahead and read that, Dad? Oh, you want me to do it? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, go to film. Assault on Wall Street, 2013, directed by Uwe Bo. 99 minutes. Power. Greed. Justice. Jim is an average New Yorker living a peaceful life with a well-paying job and a loving family. Suddenly, everything changes when the economy crashes, causing Jim to lose everything. Filled with anger and rage, Jim snaps and goes to extreme lengths to seek revenge for the life taken from him. Not entirely accurate. The first hour or so is his yeah. sick wife uh, 
continually running into financial problems because of her, her illness. Yeah, but that sounds more like uh, defense and falling down. That's the character's Michael Douglas character's name is actually defense. I don't think they ever gave him a name. Um, and uh, based off of his license plate, and that film, like he leaves traffic and then immediately starts his breakdown. This film, yeah, takes its time. Yeah, it does. I think that's one of the smartest things about it is I, the way it's marketed is totally as a rampage style or, or falling down style. Just um, immediate spiral into madness but it, it takes a really it and it takes its time and he also doesn't even start like he starts uh the rampage by accident right yeah yeah he kills the district attorney yeah well the car hits him right hits the district attorney and yeah well, the intentionality of it is i don't know to yeah. be disputed so through um, through uh, the medical industrial complex, uh, they run into a lot of financial problems, and then his wife's sick. Wife is very sick. That wasn't in the letterbox. And uh, so I've I've talked about this before. One thing that most modern movies don't talk about, and even talking about that movie Margin Call, which is about you know some of the villains of of that crisis, um, is is economic anxiety that normal. Yeah. Well, and th- this movie just goes right at it and keeps poking away at it for almost an hour. Uh, no, I, I think that, I mean, it's the thing that made Roseanne so controversial, the, ro- the show, television show Roseanne, is it actually showing financial strife? Mm. And something you get like in, uh, you know, uh, 18th century novels, uh, concerns around whether or not, like, if you get married uh how that's gonna happen how that's gonna work with the family and your budget um european novels um and so yeah it's i yeah you don't normally see that instead you get you know the the, uh all the characters and friends living in manhattan somehow uh right at coffee shops uh well i guess you know ross is uh is a doctor of uh anthropology or something archaeology yeah no. Wait, at least on Seinfeld, George had to move in with his parents when he lost his job. So that's right. Yeah, a lot more realistic than Friends. Friends sucks. Seinfeld rules. And The Simpsons is the best. Um, <laughs> and I also appreciate that the wife doesn't look sick, right? Like she she has something that's you know potentially terminal, uh, but she's not. Um, yeah, there's not heavy makeup on her. She's not limping around. Uh, uh, you know, she takes a bath with candles. Like that's kind of the extent of it. She might yeah. be a little slower in some some part, portions of it, but it's not like she coughs and she's like with a little bit of blood. And she's like, oh no, it's just a cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she's really, really good too. I, I thought her. I think her performance always always hits every time. And I have watched this movie probably about. 10 times now like there's some movies that i can re-watch just every couple months like i just have this feeling like i i need to watch it again and this is one of them i've probably watched this every every two months or so for she she's also in the the movie suddenly and uh on my letterbox review i gave it an extra half a star because i thought she was quite good yeah yeah i i try to figure out like what else she's been in and it seems like she's been in like some sci-fi television series and some sort of mm. canadian films but I, I was impressed both by her and Dominique Purcell uh, acting in this because it actually feels like he's acting. Or not even acting. It just feels like he is embodying a human being. Yeah. Right. After the other two movies I watched, this was kind of a surprise. I didn't realize he could act. 
Yeah, he's great. And he actually feels like a real, like he feels like a real person. And I love that their little house that they live in, uh, it's like messy and it's not like over the top messy, but it's just like a little bit cluttered and it's a little bit cramped and uh, kind of ugly. And then what I, one thing I think is brilliant is that uh, Bull shows the inside of their house throughout the film, but you never see the outside until he gets kicked out and he is going to go on the rampage. And you see that it's, it's like a, a fairly you know sizable house, but it is just smushed between these gigantic buildings on either side of it. And it's like, everything in in uh, it's like a perfect metaphor for everything in these characters lives um i think really cool that she has brain cancer or not really cool um (laughs) but that is totally a symptom that is totally something that uh has popped up as a result of modern day society modern day living 5g oh yeah 5g cell phones uh the uh the COVID 19 vaccine Yes. Monkeypox vaccine. Yes. <laughs> but Bull shoots this movie like so much differently from all of his, his other ones. And there's some great scene, like when he's sitting in the coffee shop with his, uh, the guy that screwed him over. And there's like that, uh, that shot where it's the whip pan between them yeah. back and forth. And then there's, uh, some actual Gorel, like Herzog, Herzogian Gorel filmmaking that they had to do because they didn't have any permits to shoot in New York, but they shot there for uh, a week. So everything like on the subway, you can kind of see it's like low handheld yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, I noticed that. I hear but, that they put the camera inside a suitcase in one instance, and they also <laughs> had like a Playboy bunny stripping so that everybody's looking over <laughs> one side of the uh, train station. Uh, he took a page out of the frankenheimer book of seconds uh something else that was interesting is that all the experts in it and this is i mean one big difference between this film and um postal is that postal felt like it was uh ua bowl uh just took a bunch of message boards of everything that people were upset about uh all their gripes and put it up on on film Uh uh-huh so from everything from uh I don't know, terrible things like uh, Asian, old Asian women stereotypes and how they drive <laughs> uh, to, I don't know, people panhandling who don't need the money, like just a bunch of terrible stuff up, up, uh, people upset about it. And he made a film about that. Uh, in this film, it felt like anytime you had an expert on screen, you should be wary of them. And I didn't think about that until, I mean, it's definitely apparent with the lawyer that he goes to see. Mm-hmm. After he talks to his financial advisor, but it starts as early as the doctor, I think. Uh, the first few minutes, the first doctor they see where the doctor talks about an experimental drug. And you don't know whether or not to trust this doctor uh, and whether or not, because he says like your wife's like on the mend, right? It doesn't seem like he's just trying to milk them for more money, but there, maybe the, whatever that experimental thing is, like, I, I don't know. There's just something, there's a strong distrust of experts throughout this film. Huh. That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think do, uh, doctors are, are kind of con men. A lot of them. Well, the, the doctors, are, doctors are able to separate themselves from the messy part of billing and payment. Um, and I think that, that obvious blind spot that doctors have uh, is a thing. And I, yeah. that's, that's how I saw the doctor to where he's like, he, it 
to him, it doesn't really matter how much it costs and that they don't have any insurance. That really has nothing much to do with him. Right. The lady at the front desk takes care of that. Um, Doctors would have you have the most expensive, coolest treatment possible just so they can get their hands on it. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of doctors in America would be out of jobs if they didn't keep pushing oxycodone on people. Come on. I, I, th- I think that Bull's distrust is maybe with the whole the whole structure, and he is just showing this stuff as a very literal way to uh, maybe express how angry about it he is, because he says multiple times in the commentary that as a German looking in on this, it's just so bizarre. Like, it's so far out there of what he thinks a uh, normal society, how it should uh, treat people. And yeah, I, I saw a lot of that anger in the attack on Darfur movie as mm-hmm. well. I think the, the final result was a little more misguided than this, but you could really feel as why is nobody talking about this? I'm going to go make a movie about it. Uh, Cause it just, you could tell it just got under his skin. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, I like that part of his filmmaking filmography. Um, his actual skill as a filmmaker Filmmaker and a writer in a way, right? Because it's, I mean, he is an auteur on this film and yeah. the film we just <laughs> talked about and all the films this season, I guess, that we've talked all four of them. Um, and I think that there's something, I guess, um, going back to not, we're not going to relitigate uh, Spring Breakers, but there was a repetition in this film that uh, didn't work for me, that made me check out of it um, in about a minute, maybe 30 until mm-hmm. just waiting for him to eventually for something to happen for his wife to commit suicide and then for him to do something a little bit more and then the repetition once she does commit suicide of him like uh doing the uh that classic board uh with strings between different photos love it and cutting articles out and yeah. having the, your general psychopath um or procedural uh board your vision board it, the repetition of all that uh, made made it so that I you know it, it's not a film that I um, would watch ten times. <laughs> I mean that's fair. I I know we uh, do the letterboxed and Google reviews at the end, but there's just one I want to read because I think it perfectly like it says exactly how I feel about the the uh, the filmmaking techniques in this. It says it's by w- Wim Diesel. Wim Diesel gives it three and a half stars and said, how can a movie be, how can a movie so relevant be so underappreciated? Because it's told in a way that doesn't appeal to the tastes of the tastemakers. Reject formal techniques, embrace blatant and emotional truth. And I think that is exactly what this movie is doing. And also I think with Bull's hallmark uh, filmmaking style and also marketing it as like this big action movie, um, I think he might be able to reach a much wider audience with that on like maybe both ends of the spectrum of people who enjoy movies and the ending sequence where it's like this big explosion, explosive bloody action scene is uh, I think completely unnecessary and almost kind of tasteless. Right. But I think bull puts it in there because that is the way that is like, uh, the way that American revenge movies end is that there's like this inherent bloodlust that people have watching movies. So I think Bull is making fun of that a little bit. Mm. He's also making fun of, I think he's making fun of himself for thinking that it's awesome mm. at the same time. And he's also making fun of like 
or not making fun of, but maybe rejecting Taxi Driver a little bit, which is a movie that he loves because there are a couple Taxi Driver homages in this film. And I know Taxi Driver ending with that extremely violent uh, revenge scene, spoilers, sorry, everyone's seen Taxi Driver, is something that has been criticized about it. And uh, it's a very American thing to want big bloody action sequences. I love them. Everyone loves them. And I think Bull is totally rejecting that by going, by dialing that up to 11. I think it's a lot more meta than people give it credit for. That's my thesis on this movie. Anyway. Uh, can I, can I read? Uh, uh, I was, I was up really early this morning and I was thinking about it and I wrote this little, um, can I read it about Bull? Yeah. Uh, it's about his... Um, That's why we're doing this podcast. It's about his... Because th- his first movie was about a guy snapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, Postal is about a guy snapping. This is about a guy snapping. All the Rampage movies are about a guy snapping. His latest movie in Germany is a true story about uh, a German in 2020 who snapped, killed nine people, including his mother. Um, a bull's mother? No, <laughs> the, the killers. This is a true story, man. Come on. Uh, but in Germany, it's it's very tasteless because it's all about the killer. And I do wonder about Bowl consistently making movies that are from the point of view of, of somebody who snaps and kills a lot of people. Um, so at what stage of I am just showing how destructive society media is in radicalizing these people, which seems to be a thing with him. I think you would agree. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I think it is something we need more movies about. Um, but he does fall into the trap of deifying these people a little bit. It's a thin line from the righteous anger of Assault on Wall Street and the the corridors of Sandy Hook. And I don't think he quite grasps the difference between, say, Assault on Wall Street and Rampage. Uh, and then the danger is making movies about truly dark themes and what ails us as a species, but going it alone with a single with single minded blinders and not exploring, not collaborating with people who can maybe bring up contrarian view of what his movie is saying or trying to say, or to at least give him some context, like to show it to somebody who would have like legitimate complaints and ways to improve these things. Um, so a, a lot of the directors we've covered, Eastwood and Frankenheimer especially, they're only as good as their script. So even when he gets um, like these hallmark level casts and budgets for Assault on Wall Street or Suddenly, his non-IP um, video game movies, they look better, but the underlying issues remain the same. And that's his thick-fingered literalism can be effective behind the camera, as we've seen in this movie in particular. Um, but it, I think it kind of fails him when he's sitting behind the, the blank page of uh, starting a script almost every time. Uh, And I think that's why he began his Curb Your Enthusiasm for Incel style of verite improvised dialogue, which I think is, is, it really benefits him Mm. uh, to get away from actual scripted work. But he, he keeps fine. He keeps creating worlds inside the head of mass shooters without ever asking, what am I trying to say? Is this what I want to say? Is it being effectively dramatized in my movie or does it get lost and end up saying the opposite? I think further than that, Ken, is this isn't like the more recent and lesser elephant movie, the Kesvan Sand uh, elephant, um, and that it's just like a character study, right? Instead, in all the, in at least the two that I saw, um, Postal and Assault, you have a Clint Eastwood scenario of somebody being pushed to the to the limit, 
and then something happening. Unlike even like falling down, falling down, uh, the Michael Douglas character, I think is already like been fired for being unstable and has a restraining order from his wife. And is kind of a scary dude. Uh, in this film, like, yes, this person's pushed and therefore it's the justification for the last act mm. versus the last act happens and we're trying to understand why. No, the, it's all there on paper. It's all logical. Like why somebody would go go to this extreme when they've lost everything. Well, I'm, I'm putting it also in the context of his first movie, the Rampage movies, and then this latest movie in, in Germany. And that, that's a lot of movies about protagonists who snap and kill a bunch of people. Yeah. And I think Assault on Wall Street's probably the one where it, it's most morally justified mm-hmm. um, because of how much we follow them beforehand that we're, we're kind of, we're a little bit on board with it. Um, not that I would ever say that's violence is the right way to. Mm. Um, but but as as a career motif and something he keeps going back to, um, I, I think he has mostly failed. Uh, why would you say? Why would you say that he fails in that particular theme of continually making movies about people who um, snap and kill a bunch of people, go on rampages? Assault on Wall Street, I, I don't really put in that. I think it's it's a successful. It's like he made the movie a bunch of times, and then he kind of figured it out with Assault on Wall Street, right? And he probably should have just stopped there as far as making those types of movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I saw this film and it, it, uh, it uh, felt like a, what is it? A coup de coup, uh, like a, like a, um, a passionate, like desperate, like trying to tell the world, Hey, you're going crazy. This is, uh, this is something that we need to have attention to. Um, for, for the same reason, I guess maybe that maybe that's why I think it's like an Adam McKay mo- movie, and that yeah. like I feel like these are people trying oh. to draw attention to things, and I think it's also the verite style between them. Mm-hmm. Just having it be a single character's perspective that's nice in many ways. Like I think it's it's beneficial because um, you don't need a bunch of different perspectives. I, I mean, I guess you do get uh, John Hurd. Didn't John Hurd pass away? Yeah, he got shot by a SWAT team. Shut up, man. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> 2017, yeah. But yeah, uh, I guess you get his perspective just a little bit in the film. Um, but you don't like follow. And you get the cops talking about their pension and Eddie Furlong's character uh, seeming to be just alone in the world, kind of a bowling alone uh, scenario. But you don't... Um, you're not trying to split your time between a bunch of different perspectives of like how this one event has affected a bunch of different people. Cause you already know, like we all live through it and it's up it's all through the documentary uh, or all the uh, found footage, the news yeah. footage throughout it. Um, so it's already been explained. Like we kind of, we're already there and ready for it. And I think that maybe mm-hmm. that's why the repetitions a bit much um is because like uh th- there's a lot of shorthand that could have been done just to move us quicker to something else other than uh watching dominique purcell for like the third or fourth time in front of a computer crunching numbers while the television's on or or shooting his gun in front of uh in front of the subway the fourth time. yeah yeah i get it. that's pretty clever that's a pretty clever place to practice but it was clever the first time 
But, but yeah, I guess I guess this is what I was really trying to say is that I when, after I saw this, I was like, oh shit, uh, are there like he's passionate about this, and this is an effective film. Uh, is in the name of the king three going to be like? Was there a moment <laughs> where he has something more that he's going to be doing with these other films, uh, other than losing money? And uh, yeah, it, it it didn't pan out that way, at least for the the small sample that I had. And it sounds like from Ken's perspective, it also didn't really work out. This is why I think that uh, I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad now in retrospect that Jack picked him because he's completely fascinating, one of a kind filmmaker of this century uh both how he got so many movies made despite the fact none of them apparently were any sort of success and the fact that he was able to parlay uh those ip movies into making these movies like assault on wall street mm. or even some movies that I, I don't particularly care for like rampage um the attack under i mean those are movies where he he like puts puts everything into it so right. he is using whatever cachet he gets uh, into making these movies. Um, but yeah, he's still borderline con man, how he gets a lot of this stuff made and funded. He um, is. Yeah. He talks about the, uh, why they filmed in Vancouver. He doesn't, he doesn't even, even he's so like German over the top literal. He doesn't even try to hide it. He <laughs> dog is sniffing the microphone. Uh, he, he says, yeah, we shoot in Vancouver because when the investors put in this much money, they immediately get this much money off their taxes. He just doesn't care. Like, he doesn't try to hide that fact. And I think he is so, like, like he has that dry, very German sense of humor, kind of like Herzog has. And um, I think he's, he's a, a, a lot smarter than maybe people give him credit for. Um, I think he's a genius for getting his films funded. I well, mean, that, that's, that's the game for so many directors, isn't it? Yeah, I, but he does, he does say things like, and the behind the scenes of Assault on Wall Street, he does say things like, um, um, I made this movie because if I were Dominic Purcell, if I were Jim or whatever his name is, I would do the same thing. Like, I think it's awesome to snap and go kill a bunch of Wall Street guys. Like, he says stuff like that. But I do think at the same time, he because he knows that about himself and he knows that that's probably the reputation he kind of has he's playing a part he is playing a part and i think uh this movie that we're talking about is i think the ending plays into that a little bit i think maybe that's part of the reason he chose to end the movie uh as he did yeah let's talk about that lot so after a, a hour and 10 minutes uh dominique purcell is pushed to the edge he's been evicted from his house uh because of bills because of uh, bad investments um, because of uh, a lawyer that he didn't get, he didn't talk to in enough time. But all these are like um, the experts swindling him. And so he tells Eddie Furlong, who I didn't realize it was Edward Furlong for the first hour of the film, maybe. <laughs> and then I maybe closed my eyes, was looking away, and I heard his voice. I was like, oh, shit. It's right. That's He's in this film. Because he just looks, yeah, he looks pretty scruffy. Um, yeah, he was, he had a big uh, drug problem and might still at the time. He's he's in a Attack on Darfur, and he looks even more. Um, I'm looking forward to the Crow Four uh, in October, but I'm also looking forward maybe to uh, before and after 1996's Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson film with him. Oh, before is that the title? 
Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. I think it's before and after he went through Meryl Streep's purse. But <laughs> I'll find out. Just to derail myself. So he, uh, like after an uh, hour and 10 minutes, Dominique Purcell's character is ready to uh, take action, start, start fucking shit up. Um, and I, it seems like that uh, the sequence where he confronts Hurd, they have their conversation, and he's sitting on the opposite side of the table. I think that it feels like that's like the most writerly thing that I've seen out of any, um, in, a, in a positive way. Um, like not overridden, but as like a, a clever means of getting a character out of a tight situation that I've seen out of any of these UA Bowl films. Yeah, that final confrontation between them is great. And the, uh, the I guess it's kind of a twist is also great because you're just not expecting that to happen. Would you describe for the for the person who might not have seen this film, meaning most of the population, what that what that <laughs> was, Jack? Uh, yeah. So Dominic Purcell, uh, after he shoots, um, I for, what's that actor's name? He was in Unforgiven. Uh, Lachlan Monroe. Clint Eastwood played <laughs> played Texas Rich, Slim. Richard Harris in Unforgiven. He's the guy that Dominic Purcell shoots through the head. But he lets Morgan Freeman go. Uh, no, he lets somebody go because they have like a kid, right? Yeah, yeah which he's... is pretty funny. Anyway, yeah. uh, he, when he goes on that final final assault on Wall Street through the building, he's wearing he's wearing. I think there's two very clever things. He's wearing a theater mask, right? Which is kind of like uh, I think Bull maybe calling to attention that all of this is fake, that it's theater, like it's just a fantasy, like it, it, there's no way it could happen. And then he's also wearing an oversized suit, which is great because uh, he clearly like maybe didn't own a suit before or can't get a suit properly fitted. Or maybe that was a suit from like before he lost some weight and he just, you know, he's not someone that can afford a nice suit. So him walking into wall street with that is uh, a clever touch. Oh, um, very nice. And catch. That. And yeah, he goes through the building and he shoots a bunch of people and there's some, there's some CGI blood and some terrible CGI explosions, but there are great squibs and the behind the scenes is really funny because the people operating the cameras, they have like this plastic wrap over the cameras and they're all wearing like ponchos indoors because of the squibs, which is pretty awesome. And so, yeah, he confronts the guy, uh, John Hurd, who's kind of like the head of the whole thing and did whatever the bad deal was that lost a bunch of people, uh, their money and their houses and investments. And John Hurd has this great little monologue, this great little rant where he's talking about how the system's rigged and that, you know, the rich get richer and the U.S. came and conquered, invaded and like all this, like just very, it's like almost kind of like postal. It's like Uwe Boll maybe going down a list of things he hates about America. <laughs> list of grievances. Yeah. And but it's it's great. And his delivery is great. And then um, he takes Purcell's gun. Purcell puts it down on the table and says, well, we'll do a thing where one of us grabs it. And then he takes the gun and he points out Purcell, but they're on opposite sides of the table. So the SWAT oh, team. Count of three, though, them. right? Count of three. And yeah. Cheats. Heard cheats. And so then, so be, before this, though, let, let's backtrack to the montage of him getting ready for the titular assault. Yeah. And the camera keeps going back to police response time. There's a police response time that Ooh. he has down to the minute. And it, it the the camera goes over at least three times in this montage prior to it. So he knows exactly how long it's going to take for the police right. to get up to that. So go ahead. 
Sorry. That's br- I wow. I've seen this movie so many times. See these little details you there catch. You go. There you go, yeah. And Bull does this great thing also early on. This is kind of unrelated, but I forgot to mention uh, with Eddie Furlong the first couple diner conversations they have. Um, he cuts to Eddie Furlong and he has like this look on his face, right? While Dominic Purcell is talking, and it's almost like you could kind of tell that he might know him better than anyone else does. And then later when uh, Purcell comes back to the diner for the last time and says that he's the one that's been assaulting Wall Street. And then it, it cuts to Eddie Furlong and he has that same look and you can tell that he realizes that he's being serious. So he starts laughing so that everyone else thinks it's a joke. Yeah. And so there's, I think with some of that repetition stuff, it's very, um, it's very intentional. But anyway, yeah, Heard cheats and grabs the gun, and then the SWAT breaks down the door, and they think he's the guy that's been assaulting Wall Street, so they shoot him. And then in a brilliant, like, final little sequence, um, Purcell, uh, what's, the, what's the guy's name, the actor, Michael Perret? Michael Perret. He walks him out of the building, and you think, okay, he's going to walk him to the squad car, and he's going to go to jail, right? Yeah. But then he walks him over to Keat, <laughs> David Keats. And, uh, <laughs> And My they, favorite poet. They don't say anything, but they kind of just like share this look very briefly. And Purcell looks surprised. Like it seems like he didn't think he would end up getting away with it. And then he he walks away, and he has like this great like kind of like the ending of Ronin, where um, uh, Leon the professional walks away, and he has like this random like voiceover that comes out of nowhere, where he's like, "Well, that was a fun Ronin adventure." <laughs> Purcell has like this this uh, this funny internal monologue sort of thing where he's like. There's going to be a sequel. I'm still alive and free. Yeah. He essentially becomes the Punisher, except he's going after Wall Street instead of the Mafia, which is a great idea for a reboot of the Punisher. Mm. Yeah. Actually, the post-DVD credits, that's that's what happens. Eddie Furlong's The Crow shows up and recruits him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, It's a ridiculous ending, and it's totally, I think, bull knows that it's completely ridiculous and I think he's making fun of himself a little bit. I think he's smart enough to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's like almost teasing like a direct-to-DVD sequel that, as far as I know, has never been planned or or anything. Um, it's not like post I do hope that when that happens, though, Dolph Lundgren plays the Dominic uh, Purcell role. <laughs> <laughs> and then we could have a third one with Jason Statham. Uh-huh. Uh, they should do a series of films, and it should be like the Parker novels, except instead of heists, it should be assaults on Wall Street. And he should have a different group of people who have been wronged by the system in one way or another. And then they just plan an assault, and then they carry it out, and then stuff goes wrong. But then in the end, there's going to be another one. Ooh, that's a good idea. I saw, Jason, I saw Jason Statham try and be Parker once, and I wasn't too impressed. Oh. Yeah. Do you prefer the, uh, the Lee Marvin version? Yes. Walker? Uh, one of my favorite movies. I'm glad you both didn't hate it. Enjoyed it? <laughs> yeah. Maybe? We didn't get a Postal this week. Oh, post- Postal's also great. I think they're both, I think they're both Sir Dr. Uwe Boll's two finest films. <laughs> okay. I, would, I would agree with you um, that those are his two best films. <laughs> I, I did not get to see Blubberella, so I cannot comment with any... Um, any you were saying Blubberella yeah. is a remake of Blood Rain 3? Uh, when Jack told me that, I was this close to saying, <laughs> I'm just going to watch it. I, but then I watched 
all four of the uh, bonus bowls that I watched over like a, a four day period or three day period. Uh, and it was way too much. Yeah. Everything I said sounded stilted. Uh, my vision got very <laughs> tight, tightly framed and I kept shaking. You couldn't remember Keith David's name. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I had to take a break and would watch, watch, uh, something else. Yeah. All right. Well, how about we put this in your bowl and smoke it? What uh, yeah. would you what would you say uh, Harmony Corinne would do differently? Harmony Corinne, Ooh. the it, the assault would be uh, an art installation instead of murder, and it would force people to uh, look at how terrible they are. Okay, I think he would do the like the same assault at the end, but maybe it would be like terribly filmed and poorly choreographed kind of like the ending of spring breakers mm. well i was thinking maybe he after he gets his eviction notice from that guy who serves him he goes to rehab or, or writes a book that wins the pulitzer <laughs> <laughs> now i thought it'd actually be pretty cool if, whenever eddie furlong did call him he pretended to be his dead wife and like told him that he was becoming a dentist <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh it, uh, well, did Google agree with you, uh, Jack? Yeah, let's check in with the uh, the citizens of the the internet, perhaps. Um, uh, so we'll, let's start with Google. Yusuf J says, "Literally communist propaganda." What? Fuck you. J Moffat gives it five stars and says, "Great movie. Can't wait till the next financial crisis when they make a sequel." Ooh. Okay, on Letterboxd, we have Dings Dan Ninja saying, this film walked so Joker could run. I was going to ask you about that when we were done with this, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because um, uh, a lot of Bowles' work that I was talking about, people snapping, um, his anger at the system, that the, the Joker film that made over a billion dollars almost seems like a mainstream version of the same anger. That was percolating, percolates through a lot of Bull's work. Yeah. What, what does Bull think of the Joker? That is a great question. I'm sure if his letterbox was still up, he would have an opinion on it. I'm guessing he would hate it, though, because he does mention, he has mentioned quite a few times in interviews and stuff I've seen with him that he hates the Hangover movies. Do you think Ryan Gosling's punching himself? Like, damn it, I should have done Assault on Wall Street. It would have been the Joker of like 10 years earlier. Yeah. I mean, may, I mean, he did drive, uh, which sucks. So we should have yeah. done. Maybe Dominic Purcell should have been in Drive, and Ryan Gosling oh, should have been. If he, or instead of, uh, how about David Crusoe, Caruso, uh, David Caruso from Television instead of Dominic <laughs> Purcell from Television? <laughs> yes. Will Walker gives it five stars and says Jim Baxford wasn't supposed to be ionized. It's a fall to darkness story. Lionized. Hmm? Lionized. You say ionized? Is he vaporized? Oh, yeah. Look at that. It's like, that, well, the L and the I look so similar. It's like your brain doesn't read the second the. <laughs> like, have you guys ever seen that? He was not meant to be ionized. <laughs> Whatever. It's the, Whatever. It's the end of uh, Infinity War. He just turned oh into. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. I was thinking Dr. Manhattan, but yeah. And finally, Riley Pelling gives it three stars and says, the world needs Jim Baxford now more than ever. Maestro Uwe, please return to filmmaking and give us a post-COVID sequel to this masterpiece. Whoa. I would agree. With that. I, I kind of hope he doesn't make a sequel. 
Just leave it alone. Yeah, man. Leave it alone, bull. So, like, uh, we've watched four UA Bowl films. I think we already talked about a little bit there, Jack. But was there any insights that you had from watching them this condensed, this uh, much later than having your wisdom teeth removed? Or was there anything that popped up on, like, for this last, like, final thoughts on this director who we'll never talk about again as we move on? <laughs> Nichols? He's one of, he's still one of my favorites. I think watching a bunch of his movies, the bad ones and, and the good ones, um, and watching so many interviews with him and commentary and behind the scenes stuff and the documentary, um, I think he's a, he seems like a really good person just like a really genuine really super super smart uh like knows a lot of shit about finance yeah well about films and about finance um and he's a he i think that the internet's people love ed wood right and people love tommy tommy wiseau um but for some for some reason, I just think maybe because of the video game stuff and video game nerds on the internet are annoying as shit. Um, I think maybe the internet has given people such a platform to have this self-righteousness and all this anger and you can hide behind your screen and be anonymous so you can say whatever you want. And Bull has just coincided with that at the wrong time. And he's like the target of all this 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 hate and it doesn't make any sense to me because even if you hate someone's films and you think they're terrible you shouldn't like yeah but uh, hasn't he played into it to garner even more infamy you know with boxing his critics and whatnot i mean he didn't shy away from it and become a director whose face you don't even know that's true maybe it has worked in his favor i mean he he kind of has become a brand because of that he yeah he definitely plays up the the persona a lot and uh, I don't know it's uh watch that fight if you haven't it's really satisfying seeing him beat the <laughs> shit out of those guys because they are really annoying yeah I, I he's great he's great he, his movies are fun if they're bad and they're awesome if they're good so huh, okay uh yeah uh so one thing that we did not discuss is that when we did Frankenheimer Frankenheimer had a bit of a break and maybe a bit of an exile. Uh, then we talked about Harmony Kareen, who similarly had stretches of not being a productive filmmaker. And Uwe Boll um, retired in 2016 from filmmaking and just recently unretired, as they all do. And then we are going to be discussing Mike Nichols next week with Silkwood which was the first movie he made in seven or eight years after um, self-exile from films going back to Broadway. So these four directors do have that in common where they had these weird eras of self-imposed exile from film. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess you will, you will, uh, he doesn't need the money. He has all that, all those molars, gold molars, um, from his family. <laughs> But he just does it because of, of passion. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious. Yeah. So next week, just one movie. Uh, you get to hear our five cents on Nichols. We <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's good. Uh, what, movie? what movie? We're going to do Silkwood. And oh, then uh, yeah. we're also going to discuss his career before Silkwood because he did quite a bunch of things before that. Cool. But Silkwood was kind of like his comeback. And he pretty much worked a lot in film until his death and stage. But... Yeah, should be a good one. Awesome possum.
Uh, that it? Are we done? Socials? Uh, they're on the, the show notes. Uh, thanks to Jack for writing these show notes for this episode. Uh, yeah. And editing. and editing. Uh, thanks to me for introducing you guys to this wonderful director also. Um. <laughs> I realized that what he just did there, Ken, was because we didn't have anything to say in that long silence. He just probably took our voices agreeing with something else from another show <laughs> and inserted it right there. So it sounded like we were agreeing with him. Yeah, to just cut us saying, loved it. Loved it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so good. Uh, I'm going to take Thomas's um, And a Great Film Was Made from the Spring Breakers episode and just insert that <laughs> after every bull movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I think you. the material you want from me is from the Billy Bronco episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or White Hunter, Black Heart. Isn't it Bronco Billy? Oh, it's you're Bronco doing a Billy. You're doing the bull thing where you switch around the first and last name. <laughs> by the by, the Eastwood Clint guy. <laughs> okay, well, um, thanks for listening to our our deep dive into Uwe Boll. Um Yeah, I watched eight of his movies, and actually, I watched the first fifteen minutes of the first Blood Rain. And realize that ah, life's too short. It's that's an impossible movie to watch. It's awful. It that's is awful. His worst movie. Yeah, it has a huge. Yeah, it has probably his best name cast. Ben Kingsley, right? Right. And uh, Michael Matt Madsen. Michael Madsen in long hair looks ridiculous. And he's like, isn't he a cowboy? But it's the medieval times. I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's it. Um, yeah, check our socials. Check it out next week for Mike Nichols. Oh my god, that dog is so fucking stupid. And. Uh, <laughs> Just remember, we're free and we're out there and wherever there are bad podcasts or I mean bad movies or good movies, we're coming for you and justice will because the politician, the the other podcasters won't serve justice for the movies. So we're going to. You can edit that to sound good. (laughs) I'm still alive and free. (laughs) 